0: I actually, in my very first book, tried to um, figure out a way to really tell people how hot their grill was. And I ended up, people thought I was insane, man. I spent a week <laughs> grilling ice cubes.
1: You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of getting to know the living legend, Alton Brown. Brown is behind popular and pioneering food TV shows like Good Eats and Iron Chef America, which has returned for a new season on Netflix. We talk about how Alton has evolved over the years as a writer and food educator, and what has inspired his unique, kinetic, fiery, controversial, play-by-play announcer style on the program. We also talk about the simplicity of recipes, how Sometimes they aren't as simple as you'd think. Two ingredients, three ingredients. Yeah, sure, simple at face value, but sometimes not that difficult. We talk about cacio e pepe. We talk about salad dressing. We talk about the hamburger. Man, I loved catching up with Alton Brown. I've, I've admired his work for two decades, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Alton Brown, welcome to the Taste Podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. Um, it's it's I'm a, I'm a fan. Well, thanks a lot. And I I wanted to talk about your book, Good Foods, Good Eats for and and my love of what you're doing with your book. It's really unique. But I first want to talk about Iron Chef. Take us back to the time you saw the show on TV in Japan. You had, it was not in dub or subtitle. You just saw it there. You were there. I'd like to get this story because it's so great.
0: Well, actually, the first time that I saw Iron Chef, I wasn't in Japan. I was in uh, San Francisco. Um, and I guess this is probably, oh my gosh, uh, what year would this have been? Probably 99, 2000. Um, I was out there actually shooting uh, some scenes for the very first series uh, or season of Good Eats. And, um, and I turn on the television and there's, a, a, I don't remember the, the call letters, but there's a, a, a Japanese language station um, on cable, at least there in San Francisco, and um, and it comes on no no subtitles, no nothing, and it's the first scene is is I'm watching this this guy um, nail a, a live eel's head to a cutting board, and I, I'm like, I don't think I dropped the remote, but it, 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 first off, it was a, a something I'd never seen happen before, um, and then they pull back, and the set is this, it, it's like some kind of bizarre. Um, you know, Japanese horror, sci-fi movie show thing. And and I I ended up sitting down and watching it, never heard of it before, um, didn't know it existed and changed my life.
1: I love that memory. And it, it clearly like set design is important. To you if you watch your shows, you, set design and and theatrical approach to food TV is really your jam. But um, it, so you clearly it spoke to you. Had, was the chairman there on TV at the time? Did you know what the whole idea with the show was competition plus chairman plus secret ingredient? Well, it,
0: that unfolded pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, it was all there. Um, you know, the, the chairman was there. All of the players were there. Um, Hattori-san was there. I did not realize about the secret ingredient or about the alternating because I, I picked it up in the, in, the, in the middle of the show. So um, luckily they played another one back to back and, and I just stayed glued to it. By the end of the second hour, I felt totally schooled um, and knew what was going on. But I felt like I had discovered something that nobody else knew, you know, um, because no one had ever spoken to me about it.
1: I love that. And so uh, let's fast forward to today's uh, Iron Chef America and, and just take us to the set right now. What's filming like? And I understand you are actually eating some of the food as opposed to just doing play by play right now. There's a little bit of a tweak there.
0: I've been moved to the uh, judge's table along with my co-host, uh, Kristen. And um, the reason for that is that um, the producers feel that the judging, which is far more um, conversational now than it used to be, and I think it's really a bigger part of the show, needs to be guided by, by people who actually saw the battle. And so it was decided that putting the actual food into my mouth um, <laughs> would help to close uh, the circle of life, as it were, uh, from a storytelling standpoint. Um, I resisted. By the way, because it's it's hard to sit there and eat all that food. I'm not I'm not going to lie. At the end of the day, it's it's a challenge. It's a physical challenge um, that that I don't know that I'm really up to. Um, And I would love to have that maybe taken away from me. But um, it it has. Lent itself to um, a, a bit more conversation, um, so I, I can see why why it was why it was necessary.
1: We've talked to folks like Gail Simmons and Anthony Bourdain and folks who've been in that in that seat, and it does feel like it's a it's a bit of a tour de force to have to you know choke down all like twenty rounds of food or or twenty dishes or whatever the show may be, the concept may be. And I understand what you're saying. I have to ask you about the play by play style that you really crystallized and made the show such a hit and so unique um, in its own right how did you um, create that style play-by-play are you a sports fan and were there any play-by-play announcers you followed you know I, I'm not a huge um,
0: sports fan uh, but I that I did realize immediately uh, well no I didn't when we first did Battle of the Masters which was kind of our our tryout um, our our audition um, series of, I I forget, it was like five episodes that we did. Um, I didn't really prepare anything other than I studied Mm -hmm. up on all the ingredients. No way. You didn't have any notes. Wow. Well, I I had, I had notes on the, on the food. I had ingredient notes, you know, but I thought, look, I'm just going to wing this and I'll fix it in post. You know, I know I can fix this in post because I'm pretty good in the booth. I can, I can handle this. I can make it sound like, and that's when I realized, holy crap, this is nothing but a sporting event. And, okay. and so I, I, I started watching more sports. But the, the, the problem with the way that sports really works, because I've known some real sportscasters, is you've got spotters, you've got people constantly feeding you information. And so we created a system where I had a culinary producer that's up in the booth, who's constantly getting feed from the floor and from, from spies on the floor. And this person would then feed me information constantly during the, uh, during the battles. And, and so we, we stole the model of, of how sports, a lot of sports casting is done, but I didn't follow anybody's particular style. I just knew that if I wasn't speaking, the room got really quiet and the action slowed down. So I became a metronome,
1: <laughs> so it's to be clear, they're piping your your commentary into the into the studio, and, and no. the contestants are hearing. No, you. Okay, I'm no. just loud. Okay, <laughs> no, it's not being piped. I'm just, yeah. I mean, it's I'm using my theater si- degree. Oh, totally. I mean, absolutely. And, and you know, it's probably similar to like when uh, LeBron James is is going up for that going up the court and going to hit that winning three. He's hearing. Mike Breen like make that announcement right before. I'm sure it's similar. They hear it in the back of their heads. Have you ever had a chef come to you and say, you know, Alton, you really, you really put me over the top with your commentary?
0: No, but I've had them come up and tell me that they really, that I really pissed them off with my commentary. <laughs> there have been a there have been a few chefs, um, competitors who uh, have never forgiven me for being potentially critical or poking a little fun at or well, which I don't I don't remember ever making fun of anybody. but apparently, um, i've I've seen things and commented on things I've seen that uh, did not um, sit well.
1: You're not a snarky dude. I'll say that out of snark in food media, you're you're at the lower end of the scale. So it might just be, I mean, it's probably honest, fair criticism that happened. right? Well,
0: it, not not even criticism, but observation. And and right, people right. don't what the people don't like is, you know, if if I if we're seeing something happen at five minutes left, I think it's my job to say whether or not, uh, you know, such and such chef, such and such is really going to have a tough time pulling this off, or doesn't have a lot of time left. And that's just the way I'm seeing it. Um, that doesn't. It's not a judgment, and it's and it's not snark. It's just. Wow, you know, it's it's that's the way I see it. And I think that sometimes chefs don't appreciate that. They they rather be told, Come on, buddy, you can do it. And oh yeah, no, sick I'm not offense. really there for that. Sick well, sick advance you know, in the kitchen. <laughs> no, a cheer, okay. you know, a cheer, you know, a cheer squad. Um uh, I, I'm yeah. not a I'm not a cheer squad.
1: So I want to know: Is the Netflix show uh, much different than the the show that we've been accustomed to? Are there any other? I know Kristen Kish is there, and you're both, you know, the judges as well as you're commentating. But anything else big? Difference? Well, we
0: don't. By the way, just to clarify, we are at the judges' table. We are in conversation with the judges. We do not score points. We
1: oh, we have thank nothing
0: you. to do with the actual scoring. No, 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 no. Good for we you. Eat, we we eat the food. We engage in conversation. We go away. They do their job. We sounds we do, like a
1: great gig. No judges.
0: Um, great. I've never wanted to judge these things and and it was yeah. one of the kind of one of the conditions. In answer to your question, um one of the reasons that I ended up uh, following the show to Netflix is um the the main showrunner, um Eitan Keller was the uh director and and kind of the showrunner for a lot of the years that that I worked on the uh on the show on on Food Network and he was very good at, at mining the, 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 the real core DNA of what the show had to remain, which is that it is about food. Iron Chef has always been a very specific kind of show and, and he understood, um, and, and Netflix also very much understood and understands what, what has to remain pure and clean about the show. So yes, you will recognize it. There are new functions and new storytelling mm. functions because we can drop the shows in one big packet, right? Uh, we can have story arcs, okay. right? When you're in episodic television, you make an hour show. It's really 40 minute, 41 minutes of content with commercials. And it's over at the end of the day. Um, and if you try to link it to other shows, you've got to wait a week. Um, the, the, the search for an iron legend is its own specific story arc over these, these eight episodes. Um, and it's um, because of that um, there's through line there. there mm. is um more complexity because of that. So every show is its own battle, but they all link together in a, in a way that's pretty exciting.
1: I like that. Is there actual shooting outside of the stadium? Is there going to be like a, uh, any kind of like those American Idol style, like soft focus, like, like training scenes or is it all in no, kitchen? No no, 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 no,
0: no, 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 no. It's good. Answer. This is about, this is about kitchen stadium and yeah. kitchen stadium is bigger, badder, better. Um, uh, it. it's, it's, it's huge. It has a lot of, uh, computer generated parts, believe it or not, uh, very advanced, uh, from a technical standpoint. Um, it's a great kitchen to cook in. Um, the other thing that's, that's different is, I do have to mention uh, the involvement of Kristen Kish. Um, I had often had floor reporters, but this is actually a co-commentator. She has a station like mine. um, And what that allows us to do is she goes down, I'm still dealing with, here's the food, here's what I'm seeing, here's what's happening. She's dealing a lot more with strategy, story, uh, what's going on in the chef's head because she lives that world more than I do. And then she can come back up and we can actually talk about it, which is really, really Lovely. Not something that I've ever been able to do before. Usually that person has just got me intel and I keep going. Now we actually take some breaks from me calling the action to discuss what we're seeing, which is for me, a whole new level of involvement that I find really, really compelling.
1: Into into this new uh, concept. Thank you for, for detailing that. And I'll definitely be tuning in. I want to segue over to Good Eats 4. The final years. your book. You just released you know what, Alton, I, I didn't I had not read your previous book, so I'm gonna admit that. I got a chance to spend a lot of time with this book and I absolutely love it. It's so curious and self-reflective. And you write in the intro about how with the reloaded series, you wanted to fix some assumptions you had made way back, like in 2099, when the original Good Eats was was produced. So my first my first question is, is You know, what are some of these fixes that you're making and then articulating in this very cool book that we'll talk about?
0: The Reload Project came out of of me realizing that, um, yes, I had made some mistakes, but more than that, um, the world had changed. Ingredients have changed. We've learned a lot more. There are a lot more people practicing food science and talking about it now. So for instance, um, an example of the the first one of simply making a mistake. Um, When we reloaded our first pasta show from season one of Good Eats, uh, Use Your Noodle, um, I was still very much under the influence of of my my more classical training, which said, "Hey, if you're going to cook dry pasta, you need to bring a really big pot of water to a boil before you put the pasta in." Well, in the years since, a lot of us have learned that that's false. Uh, it's not true at all. You can you can perfectly well cook pasta in very small amounts of water, starting at cold, and even and then you even have the added benefit of, of having this kind of thick starchy broth left over to finish your sauce with. So, there's an example of. I was just, I was wrong. I, I, I didn't know it at the time. But then there are other shows where I have simply like, I've, I've taken a recipe that I developed for Good Eats and I've just continued to tinker with it and improve it, make discoveries about it. Sometimes accidental, for instance, our brownies. You know, we went back and reloaded brownies that I had accidentally discovered were better if you baked them, took them out, and then baked them some more, um, yeah. and it, which was an accidental find that I then had to go back and explain. And then there are others where it's simply, look, there are so many more tools and so many more ingredients available to us now um, that they just were not common in 1999 or even up to, say, 2005. And, and, and that's because the internet has changed how we purchase ingredients. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Aleppo chili was not available in 1990. I mean, unless you were in Aleppo, you know. Um, so, a lot of it is, it was about my ideas maturing, my methodologies maturing and, and realizing that I needed to go back and make adjustments. Sometimes it was a repair. Sometimes it was a renovation.
1: I really enjoy the way you think about food. Obviously you you've been at the forefront of, of kitchen hacks or cooking hacks, or we can call it food science, but I, I just like the idea that you like, for example, your burger technique, you know, you're taking a 50, 50 Chuck sirloin patty, you're pressing it. But then you're adding this twist. You're actually taking it down into two to three inches of peanut oil. That's, you know, 325, I believe, 350. And you're deep frying a patty. This is the type of Alton Brown cooking that we're we're used to. And it's in the book. Like, what's up with this burger technique? It sounds incredible. Um, I stole it. I I, I mean, I
0: I, – This, this is a burger that, um, which I've also talked about another version of it in my book, everyday cook, um, which then evolved into the version that's in the, uh, that's in the good eats book. Um, I watched a, a cook in uh, Memphis do this. They basically smash a burger, put it on a, on a metal spatula, lower it into the fat, um, pick it up after it gets crispy, um, put a piece of cheese on it, dip it back in there, put it on a bun and call it a day. And it's like, and I'm watching and I'm like, well, of course you would do this. Of course you would do this because what do we want in the end? What I want in the end out of this particular kind of burger is I want all the crispy, crunchy outer bits, which I used to get when I was a kid at a, at a little joint in the back of a drugstore in the town where I lived, where they, they did smash burgers where, you know, the burger just got smashed super uh, flat on the grill, which has always been my, I've never been a fan of big, thick steak-like burgers. That's just not what a burger ought to be to me, my personal taste. So what better way of getting that than just deep frying the thing? And, and it, it made perfect sense. But then I had to go back and figure it out from, from kind of a scientific um, standpoint of why. You know, why, why does this work? But, but I, I,
1: I lifted it. I mean, it, it's, it was right there on, on, uh, on Beale Street in Memphis. And you write about that in the book, too. You give credit where credit is always due. And I agree with you. I think a burger needs to have that crackly edge and, the, and cooked on a flat top, and in this case, deep fried. It's a dope technique. I love it. I want to talk about cacio pepe because you write in the book how in 1999, cacio pepe, which is everywhere on Taste, we've written about how cacio pepe is being used as a verb in cooking. It wasn't really on menus in 1999. You've since Addressed this and also maybe adjusted your recipe in this new book. Good eats for well, the this recipe was
0: actually brand new um, for, for for us in, in in one of the reloads. It was like a, a a new way of showing what to do with the pasta because in our first pasta show we didn't make a sauce, we didn't really make a dish, uh, we just cooked pasta and then talked about things you could add to it. So um, for me, the the real miracle of of cacio e pepe and the thing that you have to have in order to make it properly is you've got to have that leftover starchy water from the cooking of the pasta, which is best um, harvested from the slow pasta method. Um, because it's only by binding the sauce together onto the noodles that that the dish really works. Uh, but you're you're right. I mean, this this is a dish that no one in America was talking about in 1999. Before I did the show, I went back and I looked at a wide range of newspaper um, articles from that year and 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 magazines. It was not on anybody's radar. Common as it is, you know, in in, in Rome, it's yeah. certainly certainly not. Um, in, or at least it wasn't um, at the time in, in American cookery. So um, I thought that it was the perfect um, dish to go after since everybody knows it and seems to love it, but very few people realize how simple it is. And the other reason that it was perfect for good eats is that cacio pepe is 100% driven by
1: technique. Very difficult to make. I think it's difficult. People say it's simple because it's three ingredients, four ingredients, no, whatever. No, it is
0: not simple. It, it, no. it, is, it is not simple. Rather, let me put it this way. It is simple,
1: but it ain't easy. <laughs> so true about the omelet, so true about making a hamburger which is essentially two ingredients. Yeah, like these dishes are 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 sometimes really 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 difficult to execute
0: the the fewer ingredients yeah.
1: that are in delicious
0: dishes you know there's going to be a problem and that problem is going to be your technique almost yeah and you know people say well it's just a salad oh wait 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 no the proper dressing of a salad and a simple um olive oil and lemon dressing no that is not no it is simple but it is in no way easy and it requires a good deal of practice i i still I still screw up my cacho e pepe if I'm not paying really close yeah. attention to how much I work that
1: cheese paste. I'll still screw it up. I, I, yeah. I completely blew one about uh a month ago. And and you know, the salad thing, you know, so this is like the note that everyone has when they sit down to the like a, a friend's at a friend's house and eat a salad and like, whoa, this thing is so off. Like so much oil. I think we use so much oil and and vinaigrette. Like I'm like eighty percent acid for me in my salad dressing personally. Um,
0: I, I don't, I don't think you're wrong. I, I do think that it depends on the greens, yep. uh, but we do, we do overdress salads. And I, it, my wife is actually the salad maker in our household. Nice. Elizabeth's much better than I am. And she builds everything in the bowl on top of the greens. She doesn't like make a dressing and then dress the salad. She, it, it, the, the making of the salad all happens at one time and she nails it every time. I don't know how she does it. I mean, I've been doing this professionally for a while and you- I still don't have it.
1: As an aside, I have to say your wife's Instagram is so awesome. Like she's dope, man. She's like she's a set designer and a restaurant designer. And she her Instagram is basically all these old theaters. And I, I just love it so much. So I'm going to link to that in the show notes.
0: Yeah, when we, when we were on live tour, uh, touring Beyond the Eats, um, her thing every day would be to go in and photograph the theaters that we were playing. And, um, and she's really good at it.
1: I love it. Yeah, she's cool, and we'll talk about your your theatrical presentation of you as a as a as a cook and thinker. I I love that that you have a theater degree, but I want to continue talking about technique because you admit in in uh, in the book that you have an Achilles heel and it's grilled fish. And we're definitely entering grilling season, and grilled fish is certainly something we all want to master and we all want to kind of do. We we think okay, I want to eat lighter, I want to eat healthier, I don't want a burger, or hot dogs. But tell me about your 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 sense with grilled fish and are you pro fillet or do you actually do whole fish grilled?
0: I'm more of a fan of whole fish because I think they're they're easier to manage. Of course, the, you know you're not going to drop a whole swordfish, you know, on, on, on the grill. But you know, if it's something like a snapper or a branzino, if, if or even a small mackerel, I will almost always opt for that because I I I'm not going to be worrying about tearing it up. Um, it's it's I can be more shall we say rustic um, in my approach. Um, and I, and I think that they hold better for service and you can sauce them afterwards. You can do a lot of things with them. And and, and I think it's the kind of the purest way. In fact, we've got a little, uh, lake cabin that, uh, we we often, we, all we do is grill because we don't have an oven and we'll, we'll, we'll take a whole fish and just cook it directly on the coals. We don't, we don't even use a grill grate. So to me, it's like, it's one of the best ways of really capturing the flavor and the essence of what a fire can do to fish. Um, and, and I think that's, that's kind of brilliant. But you know, every now and then you want a piece of salmon, or you want a piece of a fish that's probably going to be too large, or you know, I'm, I'm not going to, like I said, cook a, a yellowfin tuna um, on on the grill. Um, so I, I've 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 managed to, to to pull this off for myself both ways, um, and and. To me, it's it's real. Again, it's it's one of those technique things. It's it's like I'm going to keep this as simple as possible. I want this fish to taste like what this fish is. What do I need to do? What does it need from me? And usually, what it needs is a little salt and a little oil and not damn much else um, yeah. and some acid at the end. Um, I don't marinate anything anymore uh, before I cook it. Well, sometimes skirt steak, but that's only if I'm cooking it directly on the coals. But I I just you know. I I get the best fish that I can. And we've gotten to where one of the things that's been good about COVID actually is that we ended up finding a lot of places to get things shipped in from. And so we we started buying um, shares out of a a, a fisherman's organization called Sitka Shares in um, Alaska that just sends us really, really super high quality frozen fish. And it's like, stuff's immaculate, you know? Um, and we keep it in the freezer and we break it out and I do as little to it as possible. But the the real, to me, the the real, there's not a secret, you know? Um, they'll tell you, oh, your girl's got to be super clean. That's, BS, it doesn't. I mean, it does it help. Go
1: to a new restaurant, it's not clean. No way. <laughs> what happens
0: though is that we we fidget with things too soon. Um yeah. and you know, when you put when you flip a piece of fish over flesh side down on the grill, if it doesn't have time for the, the protein to really set, it's not gonna release from the grill and it's gonna tear. Um, but you know what? Okay, that 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 happens too. Um and and so I, I don't worry about it as much as I used to. Uh, but but being patient and being able to manage your fire manage heat you know in the end the grill is still the best way to learn how to cook food because it's the it's, it's the most primal way to to deal with the essence of cooking which is the application of heat you know, food plus heat equals cooking. It's on my very first book. It's it's like, that's what it is. And so learning how to manage heat, learning how to feel the heat, learning what, you know, that's, that's too hot. We don't need it to be that hot or it's not hot enough. We're not going to get a good sear. Those are the things that are so great about that. You can you know teach yourself um, when you're, when you're cooking fish on a grill. But for me, simplicity first,
1: I fully agree about the having patience and knowing when that, that time, when you, you take your fish spatula and it, it really, it just releases the proteins release. And then Kenji writes about that in the, food lab with this salmon and it's like pretty simple you just can't be impatient with the grill I mean my question like temperature wise how hot am I going with fish with like a swordfish or or a a, a, like a salmon filet you know I don't even tempt my, my
0: grill anymore. I I look at it. I put my hand over it. um, I close the lid and then I spit on the lid. (laughs) See how long it takes for the spit to sizzle away. I, um, I, I I guess I've kind kind of gotten Zen with it, but I, I tend to, to start my, my fires hot um, and then choke them down with air, air control. I use a, uh, my favorite grills made by a company called PK, um, in uh, Arkansas, and they've got a, uh, an air control system that I really like a lot. It's, it's, like, it's got these two tubes that run across the bottom and you can, you can choke them down by turning the tube one way or the other way. And I, I find that I get really good air control that way. So what I tend to do is I start hot and then choke the heat down. Uh, because you can't go the other way.
1: Yeah. It sounds like you're cooking over briquettes and charcoal. That's kind of well, I'm, I'm
0: hard. I'm strictly hardwood. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's, hardwood, it's, it's hardwood, chunk, yeah. chunk. Well, chunk charcoal um, yeah. is the way that I'm going. It, well, what it was my temperature. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm probably, uh, I don't know. Temperature from where from, from an inch above the lid from.
1: Yeah, it's true. Good point. I, I okay. actually,
0: in my very first book, tried to um, figure out a way to really tell people how hot their grill was. And I ended up People thought I was insane, man. I spent a week grilling ice cubes. I figured out, okay, most Americans have freezers with ice makers that make this long half moon shaped ice cube, right? Okay, if I set that, perpendicularly across the grill grates of a Weber kettle grill and time how long it takes for it to melt through and drop. I can build a chart based on that to figure out how hot the grill really is. Because otherwise, how do you freaking know? You don't yeah. even hot a lot of grill. You don't. You can't put a temperature gauge
1: right in the fire. You know, well, it's not going
0: to. No, yeah. of course. Well, you can, yeah. you know, is, is that data you can use? No, I, I don't think it is. So my whole thing there was, look, teach yourself. What's high, medium, and low? And then do it often enough to where experience takes over. I did actually build the chart, though, based on ice cubes, because it was the only thing I could think of that was standard, right? The ice cube is this amount of temperature, water melts at this rate. I, I felt pretty clever at the time. <laughs> um, but I, I can't, I'm, I'm actually thinking about my next book being, finally, which is something that some people have, have asked me for, doing a, a grilling book. Um, a full one on hundred percent grilling project and, you know, dealing with the, the vagaries of, of temperature control will, will certainly be a huge part of that.
1: Yeah. I, I look forward to that book. I I have to ask you, I, I ordered on Amazon, um, a package of xanthan gum, like eight ounces of it because I was reading about your grilled fish and I'm going to make your salsa verde with xanthan gum. My question is, is what, like, I just bought this bag of xanthan gum. What am I going to use? What am I going to do? It is a fantastic stabilizer and emulsifier. It will yeah. hold,
0: bring sauces together, hold them together, help them to hold their body. But you're going to have to use a really good little uh, uh, microgram scale because you can't over. If you overdose with this stuff, it gets it gets gross fast. Xanthan gum in very small amounts is a very very powerful and friendly player in the kitchen, and I think a lot of people would profit from it. My sauce game, especially, um, you know that that show which was about I need sauces because I screw up my fish is it is completely a game changer flavor can be affected only in that when when you start using this kind of substance to hold things together. Um, it can ch- it, it, it it can change certain elements of taste and flavor because those ingredients aren't kind of separate anymore. Uh, they're being held together. But other than having to sometimes having to adjust um, small amounts of acidity, I, I haven't had any problem with it. The main thing is, is you've got to learn how to dose it properly. A little yeah. goes a long way.
1: Yeah, and like it goes without saying, we've written about it like four times. I've written about it in my book Food IQ. I've written about it and probably every publication I've ever written for is that you have to buy a, a freaking digital scale. The Ascali scales, they look so great and they cost $18. Let's, let's go there. Like digital scale. Come on, let's go.
0: Um, I, I believe in multiple <laughs> digital yeah, yeah, yeah. scales. I've gone over in my kitchen, uh, to using, uh, some of the higher end, um, Japanese barista scales. Yeah, um, which those I Hario find, ones? Those yes. Hario. Um, yeah, yeah. Know, They're rechargeable. You can charge them from a the USB. Uh, they're relatively attractive, and they do a great job. It's one of the best things that the coffee industry has
1: done. I think is is made quality uh, microgram scales um, available. We'll buy one and and or and, and gift one and, and buy two. So I want to ask you about your live show. They're really cool. Like man, like you go on tour, but you're not just doing like in conversation. You're not just doing a demo. What, what, what is an Alton Brown live show like? It's a culinary variety show. That's what we call it. Um, I've done three of them now. Um,
0: and I, I was very inspired by the variety comedy and musical shows of 70s television. <laughs> Things like the Sonny and Cher show, where you have skits, you have music, you have different kinds of acts. It's it's really an extension of vaudeville in a lot of ways. So what you get with one of my live shows is um, me and my band do some of our food songs that are very integrated into the show. So yes, there's live music. My, my wife, Elizabeth's my bass player. There's family stuff. There is what I would like to call comedy, uh, but of course it's not comedy unless people laugh. Uh, but there's always a section of the show that involves a kind of large monologue or storytelling that's somewhere between, uh, if you remember the old Irish, he's, he's long gone now, but the Irish comic, uh, Steve Allen.
1: Oh, of course. Definitely Steve Allen. Yes.
0: Uh, somewhere between there and Garrison Keillor, only you don't doze off. Um, <laughs> well, I don't doze off while I'm doing it, at least. Um, and then there are um, always very large, very strange food demonstrations, um, that it usually involve us building some really, really big, ridiculously out of whack device, uh, just to cook food. Um, in my, the last tour, not the one that I'm currently still in, um, beyond the eats, but back when we did eat your science, we built a 13 foot rocket hot air popcorn popper. Um, we have built a, we built for our first show, we built um, a mega bake oven, which is an easy bake oven, only it's eight feet tall, 12 feet long, and can be seen from space when it's turned on, uh, which we use to cook pizzas um, under nothing but lights. Um, 70,000 um, watt uh, rock and roll par lights uh, in a giant device. Uh, we've made ice cream by building a thing called the jet cream, which uh, uses a, um, two different types of uh, fire extinguishers to shoot a stream of, uh, of compressed Chocolate cr- cream into directly into the stream of CO two coming out of a twenty five pound CO two fire extinguisher to make a gallon of carbonated ice cream in ten seconds. And the one that we have in this show is our probably biggest and best yet. But I'm not going to say what it is. Yeah. Um, and then we also have other other show components that involve that involve the audience. For instance, we uh, in 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 our current show Beyond the Eats, we play a full half-hour game show uh, that I've invented called Eat This that brings people up from the audience uh, to play this this game show that is part Q&A, uh, part demo, part – it's it's really kind of wacky. Um, and so there's – it's a little little something for everybody.
1: I'm going to guess you're a fan of Double Dare. I'm going to guess you're a fan of pee Playhouse. I'm going to guess you're a fan of Memphis design movement. I feel like all of this is encapsulated in what you just said. I don't know. I'm just taking a total deep here.
0: Well, I'd be interested to figure out how the Memphis movement uh, comes comes into that. Um, <laughs> Maybe yes your on, aesthetic. <laughs> you're, you're, for yes on the first two. Um, I, I'm not. I'm not a huge Memphis fan. I guess I was at the time, but it's a little, little too uh, that whole postmodern thing. Design-wise, doesn't work for me. But yeah,
1: uh, the Italians, man. You, you sometimes love them. You sometimes hate them when it comes to design. Well, you got to yeah. know when to walk away uh, when <laughs> it comes to Italian design. You got to walk.
0: And they know they know themselves what what's lasted and what hasn't. You know, yeah. that Armani blazer from '84 still rocks but that lamp from 84 might not so much yeah um, the- <laughs> you know your Tezio looks kind of dated now but um i, I would say that uh Wee's playhouse was a huge inspiration to good eats in general um i i very i lifted i owe I owe, I owe a lot um i owe a lot mm-hmm. to, to Wee herman
1: have you met paul rubens at all have you had any interaction i think that would be a we we, cool
0: have, we have we have we have brushed up against
1: each other on twitter oh i, I tend to stay
0: away hour. i tend to stay away
1: from my heroes Yep, it's a good theory. It's a good concept. Yeah, they—they
0: they just, you know, I do. I need to know these people. No, I mean, I, I, I've made new. I've made new friends, um, that are bigger celebrities than me by a long shot um, through um, social media. Um, but. Meeting your heroes is is always. It's not that they let you down, but it's like, what am I going to bring to his his life? You know, it, it, it's that whole I'm I'm going to be look how important I am now. I'm going to be a friend to Pee Wee Herman. I can't. I'm not going to make
1: his life yeah. better. Maybe it's more of a private interaction, just showing that you are. we we've we've we, we've we've acknowledged each other,
0: which is yeah. plenty for me.
1: So, uh, what's your future with TV? I mean, Good Eats or this show or something totally from Whole Cloth? Like what? outside of, of course, we talked about Iron Chef, but your own show, like what's the future here, Alden?
0: I was on Food Network for a long time. You know, I, I grew and uh, they were they were wonderful to me. They let me do my thing. They stayed out of my way. They never exercised creative uh, control over me, which I really appreciated a great deal. Um, but when I had the opportunity to go in order to, to stay with Iron Chef, I, I, it would have broken my heart to have somebody else doing that job. I, I just, I, I couldn't do it. And so I, I took my leave of Food Network and, and it was really probably a good thing because I need, I need to move on from, from Good Eats. In order for Good Eats to evolve, um, which it can, um, I, I really need to evolve it into where longer story arcs are possible. Um, and that's the, that is the big seductive element for me in streaming is that you don't have to wrap up every story in 20 minutes. And quite frankly, I really like not having one quarter of my frame being covered up with ads for the next show coming on, which is standard practice in cable now. And in, in, as a filmmaker, which I am first and foremost, I spend a lot of time composing those frames. My DP works hard, lighting every shot. I don't want it, 25% of my, my, my shot being covered up with ads for ultimate cupcake challenge. I, j- I just, I, I, I don't need it. I don't need it. Um, so being able to now look at the, the landscape, the media landscape, which is ever changing, of course, um, in a new way, I'm, I'm trying to take a few beats to say, okay, do I simply, well, oh, simply is not the right word. Do I evolve mm-hmm. good eats to its next iteration or do I cut clean and do something completely new? I don't have the answer yet.
1: Yeah. I think you cut clean. I'm not, I mean, who am I? I'm, I'm just a guy, but like. Dude, you've got I, all of these concepts, and I just love the stage show. It sounds like that could translate so well to television.
0: The, well, the, interestingly enough, the, in this, we're actually looking at taking the the, the game show that we play mm. um, and and to making it into a, a real show, uh, which we could. But I I know personally that sometimes um, momentum itself is a disease, um, and it blurs your vision and you can't see straight. So I'm trying. I I, I did. We did a, a one tour leg in the fall. We did another tour leg after the beginning of the year. I did the book tour. We, uh, you know, we did uh, the first leg, 50 cities for Beyond the Eats in the fall. We did it again in the, the winter and spring. I did the book tour. June 15th, Our Chef, you know, yeah. uh, launches on on Netflix. And then I'm going to sit still for the entire month of July. I'm going to take a month. Then I'm going to take the temperature. And then I'm going to look at, look at myself. I'm also turning 60 in um in july and i'm like well i didn't know that was ever going to happen i mean what is, i don't i don't even know i can't get my head around that yet um but it changes one's priorities it's kind of like oh uh, if there's something you want to do you better get on yeah. that uh, because guess what uh there's not as much time left on the clock as you might have thought there was
1: but you want to work you're grateful for the opportunity it sounds like i'm getting that
0: um i i'm a worker bee, and i i want to choose wisely um, it's great to have some opportunities. It's great to have fans uh, yeah. who can propel things. Um, you know, we had we had a very strange couple of years here, and and it's like my wife and I, Elizabeth and I, started doing this live YouTube show on Tuesday nights called Quarantine Kitchen, which ended up being a thing um, and getting a fan base, and we never saw that coming. We were just trying to not be bored uh, during lockdown, and. <laughs> And and it's changed people's perspective of me because now they know I cuss a lot, um, and and so we're we're looking at that too uh, because now people look at me as not just me anymore. They look at me and they look at me as as part of a, a partnership with my with my wife, which is interesting. I never thought that
1: brand would. Happen. I mean, some of the best food content is improvisational and comes out of like these like moments of just pure necessity. I feel like like some of these TikTok. Cooks. Some are really bad, but some are really, really good. And I think some of our great food TVs and come out of these these TikTok moments.
0: Agreed. And and you know, our our show is very much based on what the hell's in the fridge, what's in the pantry, what yeah. are we gonna make? Go. And Love that. Without, I come from, from a world of extreme premeditation. You know, Good Eats was researched. Every, you know, every show scripted down, you know, storyboard. I mean, very meticulously crafted. And then, you know, now we do like a 90-minute show where we don't know what the hell we're going to do and all we're using is a phone. So things have changed. Yeah. And I'm going to concentrate a little bit more now on having fun, to be honest, and not worrying so much about proving what I can do or not do. I, I, For myself, I have to think that... All the years of making Good Eats, I hopefully have proven myself as a crafter of programs. Um, I don't need to prove that to myself anymore. So I'm going to try to make decisions based on what I want to do, what I feel I should do, and then finding new challenges. You know, I did the stage shows because I had not done it, and I wanted to challenge myself. Um, and that's that's the spice. You know, that's, that's the sriracha on my uh, avocado <laughs> toast
1: when we ask all guests on the Taste podcast, if there was a book project you could work on without the burden of time, meaning you had a deadline or budget, meaning you had all the money in the world, what would that book be? I think I would probably
0: attempt to write a really badass food sci-fi novel.
1: Nicholson Baker style. Hmm. Tolkien?
0: Oh no. No, no dragons, no fantasy. No, I, I just think that sci-fi is a, a wonder, food is wonderful fodder for, for sense fiction, for for uh, looking at at the future and uh, and looking at different kinds of storytelling. So I, I'd like to write that book.
1: Alan Brown, I, I want to see that book in the future and I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me on. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.